Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast, your trail map for the world of mountain biking. And now, I'll introducing your host, Gareth Beckett. Howdy, mountain bikers. Thanks for being here, and welcome to episode 129 of the MTB Tribe Podcast. I'm here, as always, to help you find out more about mountain biking, how to get out in the trails, keep you stoked, and hopefully learn a little more about mountain biking and the people involved. So thanks so much for tuning in this week. And thanks for getting involved with the podcast. Now, before we start today's show, I just want to say a big thanks to Doug Thompson, who got in contact via email. Doug is from Wisconsin in the US of A, and Doug wrote in just to say a big thanks for the show. He listens it on his way to work, on his commute, his daily commute, and that it helps him make that trip a little shorter. So thanks so much, Doug, for that. And thanks for anybody that's getting in contact via email and uh, just giving me a shout out and just saying thanks for the show. It really does mean a lot to me and a lot to the show. And so I will be giving guys a shout out each week from now on because obviously I do appreciate you getting involved and it's because of you guys and hearing how the show is helping you that this thing keeps to keeps continuing so I just want to say a big thanks to everybody that does that and Doug thanks so much man I do appreciate you sending me that email it's great encouragement it's great to hear from guys like yourself so uh, thanks dude I hope you keep enjoying the show and I hope it keeps your commute that little bit shorter so thanks so much Doug I appreciate it. Now this week's show is a little bit different because a number of weeks ago I was asked by Wesley Cheney to come on his podcast. Wesley has a very cool podcast called Tell Me About Your Bike and he just got in contact, he listened to the MTV Tribe and he just wanted to kind of have a chat and get together and do a podcast together so obviously I said yes, I had listened to Wesley's podcast a number of times and yes I really do enjoy it it's very different it's very chilled out very relaxed very much just a conversation between two people and uh, it was great to get on the show it was great to have a chat with Wesley and um, just say hello and have a chat about bikes about life about everything else that this mountain biking thing kind of makes people do you know it changes our lives it changes the direction of our lives or careers even so it's uh, it's pretty cool just to have a chilled out chat with Wesley about those things now it's Wesley's podcast so he was happy enough to let me share it on MTV Tribe so have a listen total chill out or this one see what you think and uh Please go over to Wesley's channel and give Wesley some support there. You will find all Wesley's details, how to get in contact and stuff in the show notes, mtb-tribe.com, episode 129, and uh, you'll find out more about Wesley and what we chat about there. So thanks so much for tuning in this week, folks, and uh, let me just get Wesley on the show here. Let's get listening to Wesley's podcast, Tell Me About Your Bike. Welcome to Tell Me About Your Bike, a podcast about the meaning of life, the universe, and bicycling. I'm your host, Wesley Cheney. In this episode, I talk with someone brand new to me, the host of MTB Tribe, Gareth. Gareth, how about you introduce yourself? Hi, Wesley. How are you doing? Thanks so much for uh, pulling me on the show. It's uh, great to be here with you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, and just so folks know, this is we're recording this conversation via Skype. Uh, I am in Norfolk, Virginia, um, where it's about one o'clock in the afternoon on a, uh, a warm uh, early spring day. The trees have just started budding, and so my uh, my sinuses are, are are dripping as I'm talking <laughs> from my, from my allergies from all of the pollen in the trees. Um, my car is 
has a yellow film on it right now when I walk outside from from all wow. the pollen off the trees. It, it is just intense. It's it is it is uh, crazy. But uh, Gareth, you're co- talking to us from uh, Malta. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I've been here for almost a couple of years now. Um, we'll be here another four or five months, and then we're going back home to Northern Ireland. Um, so I started the MTB Tribe podcast there, and then my fiance was brought out here. She's an archaeologist. She landed a, a good spot oh. out here for a couple of years. So I just followed her, and uh, you know, so I've been doing stuff here from Skype and uh, just trying to keep the podcast going this way via here. Uh, the mountain biking scene's quite good out here, to be honest. There's quite a lot of guys at it and stuff, so it's it's quite popular. That's what I was wondering because um, I've got to tell you, last time I was in Malta was. Uh, probably the summer of 1997, I was there wow. on, a, on a on a U.S. Navy uh, amphibious assault carrier. Um, so it would have been this massive, like the size of like the Ark Royal, this <laughs> massive helicopter carrier with with Harrier jump jets on top of it, and we pulled in um, and did a, a port call in the the big town in in Malta. I'm forgetting what the name of it Valera, is. Valera, you would have been there. Valera. Yeah, Valera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, we pulled in there, and it just the, the ship just dominated the skyline. And um, I, at the time, I was a really big rollerblader because um, <laughs> bikes were hard to get onto the navy ships, right. but you had just enough room in your locker that you could stash a pair of rollerblades in a helmet. Wow. So every place that we pulled into, uh, Valencia, Barcelona, uh, Marseille, uh, Malta, I would get out my rollerblades and I would go explore the cities, these old cities on on rollerblades. It would be me and another buddy off of the ship. These two crazy American sailors were rollerblading up to like the center hill in, in, in Malta and then came back down. And I can I have very, very fond, vivid memories of yeah. rollerblading through malta so i can only imagine that the mountain biking must be pretty spectacular there yeah well if you were rollerblading here now you would still be looked upon as a crazy person because right. <laughs> <laughs> i'm that because hasn't changed the, no like the roads here and the pavements they're even to walk on they're pretty treacherous at times so um i certainly wouldn't attempt it on a set of rollerblades no <laughs> Um, but it was we we were sticking to the smoothest of the roads that we could find but we were I, I i still wore pads and i would i would still end up you know uh crashing once or twice that wasn't uncommon so yeah, yeah it was part but it was part of the adventure it was part of the challenge mm-hmm. yeah sure and no the mountain bike scene here is good you know there's a good bunch of guys here and um it's for anybody that doesn't know the kind of landscape of Malta, it would be the closest I could describe describe it would be like a, a large rock garden. That's basically yeah. what it is. It's technical, it's quite slow, some descents. Like they do have downhill competitions here a couple of times a year, uh, but very short, very intense kind of stuff. So it, it builds your skills that way and it's very loose and, and dry. So yeah, like there's full saucers out here. All the guys ride full saucers, and um, yeah, man, there's a good community here, and the guys are all pretty welcoming and and very friendly. And yeah, it's good. It's good. I can't complain. Now, what about um, um, do you have any of those like Red Bull type ro- uh, races, downhill races through the cities? Because I can in the in the old part of the town, I can totally see that happening in Malta. There's there was some little hills that were really steep and. I looked at it and I was like, man, this would be fun to mountain bike. 
yeah, you know what? That would be amazing here. And I think I think there would be an issue with allowing getting getting the permission to do that, allowing right. the guys to do that. I don't think the community's maybe big enough at the minute. Um, the car is still very much king here in Malta. Right. Um, you know, you don't see very many commuters or anything like that on bicycle. On bicycles, the the drivers, even though they're getting they're getting more aware of of people on bikes and electric scooters, are very are very popular now uh, for commuting. That you know it was it's quite dangerous, so you would need to be aware. But that would be amazing here, especially in Valletta. That would be absolutely stunning. I could see that happening. I mean, I, I'm just t- picturing those Red Bull, you know. Um, POV uh, mm-hmm. uh, videos on YouTube and thinking you can pull that off in Valera without a problem. Well, what mm-hmm. about uh, what's the e-bikes uh, scene looking like? Because I can imagine in Valera and in, in Malta that you could have um, e-bikes for, for tours and there would be quite a number of cruise ship passengers coming through who would be interested in in going off and being able to see some of Malta without the hassle of really killing yourself trying to get up and over some of those hills. Mm. Like the government here has it has e-bikes for rental. You know, when you can find them, you pick them up anywhere in the, in the city. They'll, there'll be a few different destinations where you can pick them up and you just kind of, you do it via an app. Uh-huh. So there's that, which is available. The bikes wouldn't be the, of the highest standard or quality, but they're there. You can use them, no problem. Um, I see there's, there's different tours and stuff you can get here. There's Segway tours. There's lots of different stuff like that. And, um, you know, I work in a, a mountain bike store here called oh. Wheel Wizard. And it was a great way to just get integrated into the community here. And, yeah, we sell quite a lot of e-bikes now, to be honest. Um, I could imagine that in, in Malta they would be pretty popular. Yeah, they're getting that way. And the government here has a really good scheme as well. So if you spend, let's say, for example, 2,000 euros on an mm-hmm. e-bike you will get about 600 euros back through a government scheme. So it's only costing you 1,400. That's not bad at all then. Yeah, it's very good. And these are, you know, the likes of Orbea bikes where you're running a Bosch Bosch motor, a Bosch battery, all, you know, hydraulic disc. So they're good, good quality bikes. And um, yeah, like there's lots of people using them now to commute to work because, the traffic here is just a little bit of a nightmare and it's taking you a bit of time to get to, to your work. And then when you mm-hmm. get there, you can't get parked. And, you know, so people are leaving the car at home and taking e-bikes and uh, e-scooters and all these things. So it's it's slowly but surely happening. Yeah, it's looking good. That's exciting to hear. Yeah, we, the the uh, e-bike scene in, in the States is, uh, uh, is seeing a, a, a similar uh, explosion in popularity. Um, I work at a, uh, a bike store as well, so I see um, we're, we're, we're selling them quite routinely now. But the, uh, um, the interesting thing about the, the, some of the American bikes, which I don't think you find on, on the European e-bikes as much, um, we've got a throttle. So, right. Wow, wow, okay. Yeah, <laughs> it changes everything. It so does. The, the, there's these big American, like, Cadillac, uh, e-bikes they're these big uh, they look like beach cruisers with mm. with this massive like eight kilo battery on the back of it weighs about 15 pounds seven or eight kilos mm-hmm. and 
and and this massive um, uh, in-hub motor on the back of it. And yeah. so you can when you when you twist the throttle on it, it just surges forward on you. I mean, you, you feel like you're driving a Mustang. It, it's just <laughs> it just throw you know it, it throws you back and 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 it'll take you up to um, uh, thirty four kilometers, twenty miles per hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it it will it moves really fast. But there uh, those are the those are the ones that are really popular on the uh, flat boardwalks along the East Coast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what kind California of price are those well. things? Um, those are going for the starting price on on the, on the Pedigo is is the American model. Um, uh, the starting price on those is going to be three thousand dollars and going okay. up to if you blinged it out and you got all of the extras, you'd be looking at forty five hundred or five thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So they're they're big big lithium ion battery packs in it i mean that's that's what you're, the battery alone costs like fifteen hundred dollars yeah wow so um it's a massive battery compared to what you're riding on these little bosch motors which are beautiful i love those riding those bikes too you know and it's a, it's a totally different feel but mm-hmm. these things are just like these big massive harley motorcycle sort of <laughs> equivalents in the bike world i mean they're they're crazy fun but do you get do you get a lot of harleys in malta yeah there's a harley store here I thought I remembered seeing um, probably off of a, we get a lot of Navy sailors here in Norfolk. And so you'll end up seeing like t-shirts, guys will be wearing Harley Davidson t-shirts. It'll say like Harley Barcelona or Harley Marseille. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking I had seen one for Harley Valera um, Malta. Mm-hmm. On that. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's yeah. a Harley club here and all, you know, there's like, um, not, not a hell's angels, but a province wide kind of Harley club here. So interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the the e bikes you're chatting about there. Do you need a license for them? No. Um, it, 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 as it stands now, there is no need for a license on it. Now, if it goes over a certain speed limit, mm-hmm. um, if it goes over 20 miles per hour, uh, then it is subject to regulation. But how they're regulated varies from state to state. Um, so as long as you're not doing over 20 on it, then you can have a throttle. Uh, you can have pedal assist. Um, the pedagos had both on it. So it would, it would, it would automatically start, um, giving you some assistance as you were pedaling, but then you always had the option of turning the throttle and adding more power if you wanted it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it was really nice actually for, uh, older folks who were trying to get the bike started from a dead stop. Mm-hmm. You know, we would, we would actually teach them to start with the throttle because once they got the momentum going once, and then they were able to start pedaling and they were they were they were feeling confident control and they would let off the throttle um but you you always had that option of being able to use the throttle so it was it was an interesting uh approach but um the other thing i mean you just can't ride them on the sidewalks in in norfolk which is you know that's the same as for ghosts for bicycles people do it but you know when you do that you're you're taking more of a chance of hitting a pedestrian Especially if you're traveling, you know, much faster than they are, and it's it's easy to overtake somebody really quickly, or somebody steps out of a building and you didn't see them, and you're on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. So we would always encourage folks to ride in the street, just like we would on a regular bike, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just chatting about the e-bike thing, if you could clear something up for me, because it'd yeah. be quite interesting. Because I hear a lot of different stuff coming out of the states. Um, as far as trail riding goes and the pedal assist bikes there, uh, the pedal e-bikes, are they yeah. popular for your trails or is there a bit of a backlash with them? 
It's been a little of both. Um, there's there's some folks who don't like riding with them, and I, I'm here on the East Coast. There's we have to drive for a good two or three hours to get to any respectable mountain biking. Well, we have small mountain bike trails. We were actually, I was actually up building a trail yesterday in, in Norfolk, but it's, you know, we're going over old sand dunes and it's mm. in a, in a muddy swamp. Um, so it's not, <laughs> you don't really need an e-bike for, for riding on that stuff. But in other places, um, I've seen, it's, it reminds me of where mount, the state of mountain biking on, on trails wa, was 25, 30 years ago in, in the late 90s when people were like asking the question, well, do mountain bikes belong on trails? You know, now we're asking the same mm-hmm. question, but we're like, well, do e-bikes belong on trails? And I think there's going to be the same backlash from some parts of the community. I think you're probably going to see um, more conservative administrators deciding to close their trails off to e-bikes and in other places you're going to, you're going to get a liberal attitude towards it. And they're, you know, they might put some reasonable restrictions in place. Cause one thing I've seen happen, um, especially in my local trails, I went in one day and this guy had pulled up in his, he was driving a Range Rover and he took out his, he had brought his son out and his son looked to be about two and a half, maybe three years old. And he had a little electric motorbike for his kid. Mm-hmm. And this thing could move easily. I mean, I, I don't think the, the speed was limited to anything less than like 10 miles an hour, 15 kilometers an hour. It would, the thing went, went fast. Mm-hmm. And it, he'd taken it out to a park that specifically was just mountain bikes. You know, there's a sign as you walk in that says no motorized vehicles. And the kid, there's, there's no, you know, there's, there's plenty of, of, of fields and, and his own driveway that he could be taking the kid in. And we were just like, no, like you can't do that. And the guy, oh, he cussed me out. He was so angry at me for, for, for saying that. And, and, uh, was, was like, well, people bring their RC cars in here. And, and, and it's true. Like people did bring their RC cars and, and, and drive them around. But it was like, no, it's like, this is a totally different thing. And, you know, we think that there is some reasonable limits. So I think in some places you might find that, um, um, they, they look on e-bikes as motorized vehicles and they ban them. And then I think in other Mm -hmm. places they haven't had an issue with them. They, they think they're just fine. So I think that the trend's probably going to be towards allowing them in more and more places just yeah. as the trend with mountain bikes in the 80s and 90s was to allow them into more and more places because people realized once they saw them out there they're like they're not destroying the trails they're not they're not riding rec- any more recklessly than anybody else can you know so mm-hmm. go ahead and let them do it i think it's a great way to level the field so you can you know spe- get out and ride stuff that you normally wouldn't feel that you were in the in a comfortable place to do it i th- i think it's fantastic for that mm-hmm. yeah it's it's interesting you know and I've had a, a number of chats on the podcast about e-bikes and, you know, my personal opinion about them is that they're very, very good because there's a mm-hmm. time and a place for them. You know, mm-hmm. they're not for every situation, they're not for everybody, but it encourages people to get off the sofa and on the saddle, as I like to say, and it gets people out in, in, in nature and out riding bikes and getting a bit of fitness and, you know, there's... Even a couple of friends I have back home, they have e-bikes, and they wouldn't normally use them on a daily basis. Right. But what they do use them for is if they want to do something longer or something a lot further that would maybe take them, let's say, 
a day and a half or two days to do. Mm-hmm. They can load up the e-bikes, they can do it, and they can spend a full day doing it. They don't have to camp overnight. They don't have to take a day off work. They don't have to do that kind of stuff and get a full That's ride. That's amazing. In. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff is awesome. And then, obviously, with people... Now, it, it's interesting because we have a couple of guys... Um, that come into the shop, that show up with us. And they they go to Morzine every year. They do the downhill stuff. They have mm-hmm. got a few bikes, a few different bikes. They have just started riding e-bikes because both of them have got pretty bad injuries, one to a mm-hmm. knee, one to a lower back. But the e-bike allows them still to get out and get going. We actually lent them a couple of bikes from the shop and they get really, it really encouraged them to keep riding and get back out. Um, and... You know, for things like that, for situations like that, they certainly have their have their purpose. And I think they're really good. And the other thing that we have found in the store is people that haven't been on a bike for a long time or are a bit overweight, a bit out of shape, they get an e-bike. They ride the e-bike for 12 months, 18 months, whatever it may be. And then they're in looking to get a normal bike. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, it's that, fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh man. You know that is yeah. So, that I I would we would we would see similar things when I was selling e bikes as well. Uh, when I was selling pedagogues, we would we would get folks who were coming in and they had you know gotten a, a new knee or two new knees um, and you know had gotten in in the recovery process had put on some weight and needed to get out and get riding um, and and the e bikes allowed them to do that. And, um, for a lot of the folks that we were selling to, which is my parents' generation for the most part, like our target demographic was like our age 65. Wow. Right. Okay. (laughs) We were, we were selling to a lot of wealthy retired folks. Um, so people who had some disposable income, um, and, um, you know, had maybe been pretty active earlier in their life, but were now at the point where they weren't as able to be as active. So that was our target demographic as opposed to selling to commuters, you know, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Uh, folks who might be, you know, a decade or three decades younger. Um, so a lot of a lot of uh, early retired folks uh, in their 60s and um, a lot of them would be buying a bike, uh, any bike, and they wanted to be able to they wanted to know that they could go out for the ride. And if they turned around and were heading back home and now they're hitting a headwind that's gusting off of the the chesapeake bay at you know 30 miles an hour Mm -hmm. that they're and and they don't feel like they have the physical strength to get back on their own they can use the throttle on the bike they can ride back they can get that assistance they can they can finish the journey and not have to call it quits prematurely or hurt themselves getting back home so there's a lot of security and peace of mind knowing they had this big big battery and this big motor (laughs) it was like a 500 watt motor on the on the hub Uh (laughs) it was massive um, but, uh, yeah, great bikes. So what kind mm-hmm. of bike do you ride day to day over there, Gareth? Well, at the minute I'm not riding because I broke my, uh, clavicle. Oh, mm-hmm. did you do that while you were riding? Yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah. Um, so I have actually been off a bike because there's problems with it. I had to get surgery. I had to get a plate put in. Oh, uh, there's like seven screws in the plate, um, but it's not right. There's something not right. I still get pain with it all the time. I mm. have, you know, I can't put my arm above my head kind of thing. So 
I did go out riding once after the operation, um, but it was just too painful. I can't, I can't, I could, I can't wheelie or I couldn't do big drops or anything like that. I just don't have any any power in it because there's too much pain going through it at that time. Right. Yeah, um, I got to give that time to heal. Takes yeah, it, it, it's so hard being patient. Yeah, um, it's been too long now. So I actually I'm getting a second opinion and I'm kind of in the middle of that. I, I personally think I'm going to have to get another opera- operation and get the plate out and see what's going on in there because I've been going to a private physio and stuff here and he says I've torn my rotator cuff and oh. a load of other stuff in there as well. So it's not just as simple because i i broke it right at the end right at the tip where it kind of goes into your shoulder your okay. shoulder joint okay it broke there and then there's another little bit snapped off as well and um yeah it was pretty complicated so uh, and not were good you, were you mountain biking when this happened yeah uh-huh yeah oh and that how you know, how how long how far were you from the trailhead when that when it happened did did you walk out probably. No, this is a crazy story, right? <laughs> okay. Because well, we got we time. Were, yeah. We were biking and there was about 15 of us out. And there was something wrong with the saddle on my bike or with the dropper. Uh-huh. And I stopped. We all kind of stopped. So I thought, right, I'll take the opportunity to fix this. So I had a quick look at it. Um, but we were on a trail that I hadn't ridden before. So... I, the guys all started to go off. I says, yep, I'll follow, no problem. Got all my gear back on, got my tools back in my bag. But I was a little bit behind, and I thought, okay, I don't want to kind of get left behind here and get right. lost because it could easily happen. Um, and, and so where were you riding? So we were just riding up north of the island here. Okay. Um, and, you know, the, the terrain's all very similar, so I kind of knew, I'd been out, you know, before and stuff, so I knew what the terrain was like, but um, I could see the tail end Charlie just ahead of me, so I knew I wasn't going to get lost or left behind, but I came bombing to this right-hand corner. Now, this is flat. It's not even steep, nothing mm-hmm. like that. I came to this right-hand corner, and I really don't know what happened, whether I was going, I was probably going too fast, but... I don't know what happened. Next thing, front wheel washes out. Mm-hmm. I go head over heels a couple of times, get up and think to myself, oh, I've really strained my neck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, when you sleep wrong and you've right. got a, you feel you get up in the morning and your neck's stiff and it feels all strained. Yeah. You know, and I just thought, oh, I've really tweaked that. That's that's weird. Um, got back up, got on the bike. Not really any pain but yeah. we had planned to be out for three or four hours that day so i was carrying a lot of water uh so my bag was quite heavy and so we read on i caught up with the guys and you know my shoulder started to get worse and sore and sore but it was nothing i wasn't really too concerned and then we stopped about 50 60 minutes later mm-hmm. to go for a swim because it's the summer water's warm beautiful yeah and I went to take my backpack off and, and couldn't really get it off. And then, oh. yeah. So one of my friends there, Federico, an Italian fella, um, I said to Fed, look at my shoulders. Is there anything different? And he just, his eyes went twice the size of his head. 
and he says to me, you have to go to the hospital right now. Um, so I had to write, I tried, I was about half an hour away from the cars, from the, where we, we kind of, the trailhead. So mm-hmm. I tried to ride as much as I could back, but the downhill sections, I just couldn't do. It was too painful. And, you know, it, it's that kind of scenario. I was fine beforehand, but then as soon as I knew, you know, and then I could <laughs> feel the bone, I could feel the bone and everything, yeah. you know, kind of yeah. poking up oh, through. Oh, I can feel it. Yeah. I, I, and then I kind of felt a bit nauseous i thought i was going to be sick and then uh, the pain was horrendous and then you know but only because fed says to me you have to go to hospital (laughs) (laughs) so that was the scenario but the other thing here i'm not sure how you have it in the states but the bikes here in malta um the brakes are on the other way around I've heard that, yeah, that you guys flip them so your your left mm-hmm. hand is on the rear brake and your right hand is on the front. Yeah, well, here, that's the way we have it at home, but here it's the other way around. Okay. All right, so the right brake here is is the back brake and the left's the front. That would be standard American, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. So I personally think what happened is when I came into that corner, I was going too fast it was a little off camber. I, I didn't really know where I was going. And just subconsciously, I touched what I thought was the back brake, but it was probably the front. The front. And then mm. it just wa- it washed me out. Um, you know, so that's what happened. And, you know, a silly, silly mistake. Loss of concentration, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And that's it, how it, it happens. And, yeah, and it just snowballs on you. And, and next thing you know, you're lying down. I've... No, I, I had a similar situation where I was riding on this uh, wet pier in Norfolk and I was rushing to uh, get to um, the ferry going across the harbor um, to the other side. And I knew I had um, I knew I had about two minutes before the ferry left because I had already met the bike commuters coming off of the ferry going <laughs> no. the opposite direction. And so I'm riding in front of the battleship Wisconsin, which is this massive World War II battleship. And I had to go into a a 45 degree right turn and it's raining. And of course, like I know in my mind, like it's raining and this wood is really slick and wet. And I continued to, um, I, but I pedaled through the turn anyway, because I was rushing. And of course I had torqued up too much on the, on the back tire and I slid out and I watched my bike, which is priceless to me slide in front of me for about 15 feet hit the side of the pier and then the the bullhorn uh bar extenders that i have caught the chain so that the bike didn't go splashing down into the water below oh no and so my bike was hanging off the side of this pier on on the handlebars on the chain and i was i slid to a stop next to it it and it was just like and i was I was fine. I, you know, I just bruised my, my ribs a little bit going down, but you know, and tore my, my Gore-Tex jacket. That's what I was most annoyed about. I was like, Oh, tore my jacket. (laughs) (laughs) But my bike didn't go sliding in and I went out, but I I had another, I had uh, another crash where, where I ended up um, dislocating my shoulder. Uh And um, I was actually, I was, I was, I was delivering food in the city when it happened. Um, And, um, I crashed in a bike lane that we had just recently gotten installed by the city. We had been working with the city for years to get this bike plan in place. And so I crashed in a protected bike lane. Oh, 
Oh, and no. it was, it was, well, the beautiful thing was that, you know, I sat up and I looked over and I saw my bike was next to me in the road. And, and, um, there was a car that was going by in the next lane and I didn't have to move for the cars. So yeah. I was able to like lay back for a minute on the pavement, get my thoughts together <laughs> and then, and then lock my bike up <laughs> and finish the delivery. Cause I walked the last block <laughs> to get the delivery in, but I ended up not being able to ride a regular bike after that. And I had only dislocated my shoulder. I hadn't actually broken it. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up switching over and riding a recumbent. Um, and I was able to, uh, continue working as a bicycle delivery guy, riding a recumbent, which got me just all these great looks. People thought it was just like the craziest, coolest bike. I'd be riding around this, this university past the engineering school and all the, you know, the, the guys working on their bachelors in engineering would just be like, that's awesome bike, man. I love it. That's so cool. <laughs> What's a recumbent? What's that? It was a comments where you lay back. Where, All right, where, okay, and you, your feet are out kind of in yeah, front of you. Yeah, your feet uh, are yes. in front of you, and there's different there's different heights and 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 levels of aggression. Just like in in mountain biking, you have you know different head tube angles, and you know it can really? be more or less wow. aggressive. Yeah, so there's somewhere you'll have your 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 you'll be down really low to the ground, um, and and your feet will be you'll be you'll be sitting more upright and then the more aggressive ones you'll be laying more back and your feet will be more up in the air mm-hmm. um and you get more aerodynamic when you're in that position um because the, the smaller your front cross section is the faster you are so they they feel really fast and fun i mean and especially if you're recovering from a shoulder getting on a recumbent can mean that you can get out there and you can, you know, you can at least be riding. You may not be riding where you want to be on the trails, but you know, you're at least riding something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen people, I've taken my, um, my, I took my recumbent, um, uh, out on, um, uh, some, some moderate, um, mountain biking trails and I had fat tires like 26 by 1.75 on them. So, I mean, they weren't the fattest tires in the world, but for recumbents, which can be really skinny, like 700 C tires, right, right. Um, 26 by 175 was pretty fat. And so I was able to ride most trails and, and go over some small obstacles on it. But so there are mountain biking uh, recumbents or at least off-roading recumbents, but I, there's, it's not something that you really want to, you, you don't want to take it on anything that's more piddling than like you know, a trail with the occasional bump or a stone on it. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't, you would not be riding it off hard. I'd say that much, but you might want to look at uh, check out recumbents because it might be a way for you to, you know, get some miles in, even if you aren't actually able to get out onto the trail and put the weight on your shoulder while you're recovering. Mm-hmm. It's a good idea. Yeah. I've actually seen not here, but back home, there was a, a gentleman used to commute and an elderly fellow but he used to commute in from his house to the the local town every day in one of those things and yeah he he got some looks it's the only time i've ever seen one to be honest yeah they i i loved mine i i got some looks on it but i mean it was great advertising for the for the the sandwich company that i was delivering for you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean they loved it you know i i had their logo on this <laughs> on the back of the bike and people were just like whoa jimmy john's <laughs> the name of the sandwich shop is Jimmy John's, and so they 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 each the shops have this five minute guarantee on their sandwiches essentially. Right. Uh, that you'll once you order the sandwich, they'll get it to you in five minutes. Well, they do that by having this very compact delivery zone that's maybe like a kilometer across, but it means you can get anywhere in the zone within five minutes on a bike. 
Mm-hmm. And so there are thousands of Jimmy John stores across the United States that have bicycle delivery and it's only bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're probably the, I would guess they're probably the largest employer of bicycle couriers in, in the United States wow. because they, there, there's, there are tens of thousands of people who are working part-time as bicycle couriers across the United States for Jimmy John's. Wow. So. Yeah, it's it's a it's a neat little neat little um, you know very um, genre market you know very mm. very niche that's the word I was looking for niche market, mm-hmm. um, but um, yeah some fun stuff. So when when do you um, well let me let me uh, rewind a little bit, Gareth. Tell me about your first bike that you ever rode on. Well, the first bike I actually can remember, and it's actually. The first Christmas I can remember when oh. I looked in, in Christmas Eve, I looked out the back window and seen my father wheeling in. I was six years old, seen my father wheeling in. It was actually a motorbike. Oh. It was an MG, no, an MV, sorry, MV Augusta. Okay. And it was like a wee road bike with the ferns on it. It was kind of, we have where I come from in, in Northern Ireland is called Balamoney and okay. road, road racing there is very, very popular. And we, okay. had, we had some of the, the world's best road racers just live up the yeah. road from me. And it was kind of style on one of Joey Dunlop's bikes. So yeah, that's the first kind of memory I have as, of a bike. And I kind of grew up through my childhood on motorbikes and, oh, okay. and, and push bikes. And, and what I would do is I would, I would like the MV Augusta. I had that until I was too big for it. And then I either traded it in for something else or I swapped it with a friend for something else. And I can remember swapping the first mountain bike I can remember having. And it's funny you ask because I was trying to find one online. It was called a uh-huh. mean green. Okay. But I can't, I can't find it, but I actually swapped that for a one, two, five motorbike at one time. <laughs> <laughs> and this motorbike just... was cool, man. It was like an old <laughs> chopper, you know. It was like an old layback chopper thing. It was really cool. Um, <laughs> but my first proper bike, and I'm going to show my age here when I say this, but my first proper bike was a uh, a GT BMX. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's what I can. And I used to race. I used to race BMX. Um, there was a guy that was our school and his father, they owned a farm and his father had converted the side field at his house into a really, really good BMX track. Oh, nice. Starting gates, loudspeakers, you know, everything. It was cool. And there was national championships came there at that time. And, and I used to race and do all that. And, uh, yeah, that's the first time I can remember kind of properly looking for a bike and asking my dad, you know, you know, eight months, nine months beforehand, can I get this for Christmas? Can I get this for Christmas? Oh, you know, wow. you know this kind of thing. And, you know, oh, dude, that's I, fantastic. Yeah. And you know what? I still have a love for that GT brand. It really it takes me by. They made know? some beautiful bikes. I, I loved their the, the clean lines of their frame. They were just so simple with that triple triangle. It was mm, fantastic. That's it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I ever I never personally owned a GT, but I I can remember I th- I think it was oh jeez. Now I'm blanking on exactly how it was. Maybe it was a roommate of mine in the late nineties had a GT mountain bike 
that was um, orange and black. It was um, that 90s paint style where they would lay down like a neon orange color and then they would put mm. like black leopard stripes on top of that. <laughs> right. Right. So it was it was orange and, that, yeah. orange and black. Yeah. Like that with uh, neon neon leopard stripes. Um, and it, it was a beautiful bike, but like the entire frame. Um, and I think even like uh, I feel like there was the accessories had been matched as well so that they were like neon orange to, to, to match the frame. It was it was beautiful bike. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, those GTs were proper. Well, what was the first and I love how you use the, the, the term push bike. That's to distinguish mm-hmm. it from a motorbike. Uh, yeah. That's that that's which is that's a that's that's a that's so British. Uh, <laughs> But uh, what was the first push bike that gave you the same excitement that you got from your motorbikes? It was that GT for sure. Okay. Definitely. Uh, w- without a doubt. And yeah, because that bike, we had a store around the corner and the guy had a shop in his garage, uh-huh. you know, just like a, it was larger than a normal gar. It was probably like a two, two car garage or something like that, but it converted okay. it into a shop. And I can remember probably, you know, and me working in a bike store now, I see these young kids coming in looking at the BMXs and just asking you every question under the sun and thinking, <laughs> dude, you're, you know, you're wasting my time here, you know, but I'm not selling a bike to you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, it, I also thought, well, that's what I used to do, you know, when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. I used to bug this shop owner man all the time. I was up after school, you know, looking at this bike in the corner thinking, you know, am I getting it? Am I getting it? Am I get-? You know, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that BMX scene was really cool. And then it died. It just died a death really quickly um, back in Ireland anyway. Um, yeah, it did here in the States as well. You can still find people who are riding it. Um, but there's more, um, the, the interest in BMX has switched more to, um, um, to, um, to riding in skate parks. Yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, That's right. And which is great. Like I still love seeing the, I, I laugh when I watch these guys who are riding and like their, their, their pedals are the, the, they've got a, a freewheel on the back of the bike that rotates in both directions so that they actually can't pedal the bike. Mm-hmm. all they can do is just kick the bike yeah yeah wow <laughs> and but because when they'll be riding in this 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 fashion where they'll be riding backwards up these tubes inside of the in, in the skate parks mm-hmm. and and so in, instead of having the, the pedals work at all in one direction it, they they do nothing it's just it's the it's the opposite of a fixed gear bike um wow. and but they're they're dedicated to riding so that they'll you know they'll 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 ride their bikes from home to the skate park and then ride it at the skate park in the manner that it was actually meant to be and then ride it back home after that and and it's it, it's crazy to me seeing that but I think that's that's still stayed um uh, uh, we still see a, a fair amount of BMX people doing that but BMX in terms of like racing on dirt now I mean that's 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 pr- it that 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 wave left in the 90s it's been it's been 20 years since we've seen that sort of stuff yeah yeah it's crazy you know how these things you know just go up the troughs and the highs the peaks and the troughs and and everything else and yeah it's nuts and then you know as far as mountain biking i didn't i used to do it kind of around that time as well but where i lived there was really no trails or anything Mm -hmm. like that and nobody else done it um 
my first that main green was probably my first proper mountain bike it was a hard t no it was a rigid it was a rigid okay um and then i got another mountain bike called a concept which was also rigid and i was riding that believe it or not up until about seven or eight years ago okay (laughs) i'm still riding rigid myself really yeah i i ride primarily cross country um i don't do a lot of I do do downhill, and but I ride a um, a Trek Pro Caliber 29er, um, and so it's a it's an aluminum uh, frame. It's got their um, their ISO speed coupling on it, so the the uh, seat tube can flex. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I ride with a with a Sprung Brooks saddle, um, so I don't have a dropper post. I could install one, but I just I don't. You know, for most of the time, when I want to drop my seat post, I just get off and and drop it manually and then get back Mm -hmm. on and just keep riding. It's not a big deal. Uh, And then on the front, I've got a a rigid steel fork and um, I ride with big 29 by three tires. um, Wow, really? Yeah, 29 by three on the front and then a 29 by two and a half on the back or two and three quarter. So it's a big fat tires. Um, But I can... I can get over just about everything that I need to, and I can run the front tire at like 18 PSI. I'm Mm -hmm. so it's so soft and it's so big that it just basically rolls over most of the small stuff without a problem. And the rest of the stuff, I just have to just use my, you know, my energies, but I didn't grow up riding trails. And then I, my, my older brother was in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And so my mom's view on sports like, um, football, uh, and BMX biking was why would I want a second son in a wheelchair? Mm-hmm. I've already got one. You're not. Yeah. You're not. Yeah. You're not. You're not participating in any sport that requires you to strap a helmet on your head. You know. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That which you know, fair fair point. It's understandable. And I, and yeah, and I and I, I wasn't the most you know like physically gifted kid. I was a bit of a klutz. So like you know, it wasn't until I was in my twenties that I learned to pull a wheelie, and I still can't do one very well. I can track stand. I don't have any issue with that. And I can ride my bike for, you know, hour after hour after hour, you know, endurance cycling on the road. But, you mm-hmm. know, my, uh, and I've done dirt centuries. I, I, I did a, um, uh, off-road hundred mile ride, um, a Oof. few years ago, which was, oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. You know, to me, that was just, that was just paradise being on a bike for that long outside. Um, but yeah, I'm always riding on, on rigid. And for me, it's just, it seems more efficient. And, um, I'm also a really big guy. I'm, um, six foot four and 250 pounds. And what I find in the biking world is that most gear is made for somebody who weighs 180 pounds. Mm. So I end up breaking gear very quickly. Like, you know, I, I can go through a suspension fork in a season, um, because it's just not built for rebounding against somebody my size. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. spokes will break on my wheels. You know, I have to get my, my wheels hand built, you know, in order to be able to get them built strong enough. Cause if I just buy the Bontrager wheel set that came off the shelf, that'll last me for a year. And then, wow. you know, stuff is going to be dying or like my, um, like my 11 speed drivetrain, it lasts about a year. And then, um, because I weigh so much and I stretch the chain so much, um, I find that I've, I've shredded that and I have to replace the entire drivetrain. Mm-hmm. And so I'm actually looking at going back to um, a nine-speed drivetrain, getting really? a two-by-nine, because okay. the thicker chain 
will make mm-hmm. a difference in how long the components last. And it's not only the thickness of the chain, it's the, thick, it's the thickness of the teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it, so it, it, you know, it's, it's my way of being able to engineer for, for, for my riding style, but I l- love doing bike touring. That's my, uh, my passion is going out and doing long distance rides. And um, I've gone up to Alaska and um, I was working up there as a bicycle tour guide in wow. this little town um, that um, uh, where um, you would get um, um, four, three or four cruise ships a day would come into port. Uh, and there would be at night, we would have 4,000 people in town and at noon, you would have 15,000 people. It would just wow. explode in this tiny little town tucked in between these, these mountains and these gorgeous mountains in Alaska. And um, I would go out and go ride over the border into Canada, into the Yukon, uh, and ride up into the Arctic sun, and like the sun would never set. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was So I did this crazy ride when I was up there um, called the Everest Challenge. And the idea is Everest is 29,000 feet tall. So take whatever your climb is, um, any hill will do, and keep riding laps on that hill until you've hit 29,000 feet. Wow. And, and so, like, the fastest guys in the world, like George Hincapie, can do it in, like, I think the record right now is around 10 hours of riding nonstop. Oh. Um, most humans, like, who have done it usually do it in around 24 or 30 hours. I finished it in about four. 42 hours i think that of just riding just riding on my rigid mountain bike uh up and down this mountain pass to canada um for and rode it 10 times and it's just <laughs> and but the 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 route was you went from sea level to 3500 feet in uh 14 miles um oh, wow. and yeah and so so you had a 14 mile climb which most people that i worked with we're able to climb that mountain in about three hours, you know, three hours of straight riding, you could get to the top and then the descent would take you, uh, maybe, um, 20 or 30 minutes, um, oh, give or shit. take. And, and you'd have to stop at the American customs station on the way down and actually show your passport. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I set the Strava, uh, uh, King of the Mountain, the descent record on it, um, on my bike. Cause one of the benefits of being a really big guy is that when I go downhill, I go really fast <laughs> and, and I grew up bombing down the mountains in Vermont, um, riding, you know, breaking 50 miles an hour with it, you know, on a, on a regular schedule. Like I knew like five Hills within 10 miles of my house that I could break 50 miles an hour on. Wow. Um, growing up. And so, you know, I got used to riding up these really steep hills and then riding back down them really fast. So I set the, the king of the mountain descent. I had to wait for a day when the wind had flipped and was blowing down the pass instead of up the pass. Because if you get a tailwind on your descent, you're going to go faster. Yeah, and, yeah. and so um, I set it um, on this on this one perfect wind, perfect day. Um and then, like an hour after I had said it, I was leading a tour of mountain bikes that were riding back down the the the, the, the same descent on this highway, the, the Yukon Highway. Um, and somebody asked me, "Well, how fast could you make it down the hill if you weren't waiting for us?" <laughs> and I just looked and I was like, "Oh, if, you, if I could only tell you, <laughs> if I could legally tell you." Well, they ended up changing the road the next season. They um, they they shifted the road base. They built a new bridge over uh, this waterfall, 
Um, and so the road is now longer than it was before. So now I've got the, the, uh, the descent record in perpetuity because no one's going to be able to ever break it again. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, well <laughs> they change, it- change the road. So it's, so someone will have the descent record for the new road, but for the old road, I've got it. I'm, I'm the king of the mountain for that one. Yeah. Um, and I think my, my top speed was about 54 miles an hour that day, which wow. I just, I love going that fast on my bike. It is, it just, it's amazing. It, it, it's a feeling unlike any other. Uh, and w- what bike were you riding there? I was just riding, um, like a Trek aluminum road bike. I, okay. I think it might've been like their alpha one. Right, right. Uh, it, it, nothing, nothing spectacular. When I did my, um, when I did my Everest challenge, I was riding a Trek Pro Caliber, a rigid mountain bike with, with slick tires on it. Um, mm-hmm. And I had chosen that. I had tried doing it on my road bike, and uh, I had after I had been riding for about 150 miles, I quit because I was I, I couldn't keep riding. I was hallucinating while I was riding at night, and I was like seeing stuff that wasn't there. And you know, I was kind of like, ah, I think it's time for me to stop. Aye, that's this, this crazy. is my last lap. And so, that's and crazy. but it was the bike wasn't geared low enough for like this continuous climbing. I needed like a big 40 on the back in order to mm. be able to just slowly spin up this these long 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 grades just riding so i think when i finished riding it was about i think it was like 400 kilometers was the the total that i did in about 40 hours oh my word (laughs) it was it's a it's a different style of riding than you know i i i and and you know like you i came out damaged from from the ride i ended up it took me about four months before i got all the feeling back in my fingers yeah not surprised yeah, yeah, for all that compression. Yeah, like we have back home, we have a couple of twenty-four hour races mm-hmm. around just a um, just round a, a trail center, and it's yep. all for charity, and it's all nice, and you can enter it a few different ways. You can do it yourself, you can do it in a team. You know, there's there's different ways to enter to get people involved. But yeah, I had one of the gentlemen on from that who won it last year, and he doesn't stop. He just no. rides for twenty-four hours, and. That's what he was saying, that it's not, you know, you know people would think your, phys- your legs are going to be physically wrecked for days and days and days afterwards. But he says, no, it was more his toes and his fingers and sometimes yeah. his lower back. Yeah. That's where he lost the kind of the feeling for a number of days afterwards and stuff. So, yeah, that's crazy, man. Yeah. Well, actually, we did a 24 hour race up in Whitehorse, Yukon, um, and it's, it was called 24 Hours of Light. Um, and so because you're riding under the midnight sun, um, the rule is there's no lights. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you can ride all night long, but no lights whatsoever. And then from 10 PM to 6 AM, they have what they call naked laps, where if you ride the lap naked, you get double points. So your lap counts as two. (laughs) So, (laughs) so you're out riding with grizzly bears <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and coyotes and marmots, um, you know, there, there's literally would be grizzly bears on the trail as <laughs> you would be riding naked word. At, un, under the midnight sun at two in the morning <laughs> on your mountain bike. <laughs> what people would do is they would take they would take an old pair of bike shorts and then they would pulled them over their saddle and then duct tape the shorts onto the seat posts so that they now, instead of riding on their saddle, they were actually riding on their shorts. Right. Right. Okay. 
Um, yeah. So you still had your shorts on, but the only thing you were allowed to wear was your helmet, your gloves, and your and your shoes. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but you got double points out of it, so it was. It was. I can imagine that footage, seeing somebody <laughs> running down the trail of a chase bear grizzly. <laughs> Well, and I, I like I, re- I ran into a bear when I was naked up there, and you know I just had to say like, "Hey, bear, hey, I'm here. This is your woods. Okay, uh-huh. thanks. I appreciate you running off, so I don't have to." Yeah. Wow. It was yeah, you, and, and you had a, you had a strong incentive not to crash. Yeah, yeah, for sure, <laughs> was, man. That, no, that was that was that was it was pretty fun. I was up in uh in Whitehorse, Yukon. 24 hours of light mountain bike race so i'm hoping my career takes me back there and i can do another summer of bike tour look guiding up there in alaska and and do that ride one more time yeah Uh, it was it it was it was phenomenal um some beautiful um, biking yeah like i had a gentleman called matt sanders on the show um it was a while a while back near the start of the show and um he's from anchorage in alaska Uh uh-huh and he uh he had just got kind of the lead role in a, a released movie by a photographer called Dan Renfield. And he was like, I mean, nominated filmmaker and stuff. And uh-huh. I got Matt on the show and because he's a, he's a fantastic story. He, he was in the military and his parachute didn't open properly and he had a bit of an accident and he broke his neck and biking mm. really saved him, really saved his life. He got on the bike and things started to look up and, you know, it really took him out of depression and everything else. And now it plays a massive, massive part in his life. Wow. Um, I'll have to go back and listen to that episode. I- yeah, I think it's the episode. Uh, let me see here. It'll be easy to find. But th- it's amazing what mountain biking can do for you. You know, mm-hmm. and I've had a number of those guys on the podcast that it's just changed their life or changed the direction of their life. It's amazing. Episode sixty. Episode sixty. Okay, episode sixty. I'll remember that. I'll yeah. I'll, I'll cue that up and I'll listen to it the next time I'm riding. Um, yeah, yeah. And Matt's such a cool guy. You know, he's such a such a cool guy. And uh, the the crowd of mountain bikers they have up there seem to be just amazing. And they are. Yeah, I would say so. It's 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 pretty phenomenal the the type of people who show up um, to work in Alaska as, as bicycle tour guides. Um, they, it was and and then I'll I'll, I'll be uh, um, I was joking, but I was saying like the alumni that come out of this place, Sockeye Cycle Company, which is named after the Sockeye Salmon. Mm. Um, the 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 Sockeye alumni, you know, you find out that they're. Um, leading downhill mountain bike tours on the on the road of death in the, the Bolivian Andes or uh, leading Trans-Africa bicycle tours, you know, from, from Cairo to Cape Town. Um, and just doing just these phenomenal things. So it's, it's uh, um, I had a few podcast conversations where we would be driving up the mountain um, for Sockeye Cycle Company um, when, in our vans and I would just set my recorder up in the middle of the van and, and, uh, and record as we were driving and just talk to people about, you know, where they've been biking in like Northern Ireland, for instance. Mm-hmm. So some fun stuff there. Um, yeah, cool. do you listen to podcasts when you ride or when you were riding? Did you, did you ever, uh, uh get into that with a commuting? No, not really. Um, I, 
I would normally ride with friends, so okay. uh, you know that would be that'd be one of the main pulls for the the whole thing for me about getting out in the bike and getting out with friends and just have a having a bit of a social time with friends. Um, I've never really done it competitively or anything like that, so it's always about socialising for me and just getting okay. getting friends out and getting out in the trails and having a good time and. And, you know, I push on, I try and, te- you know, I, I don't go out and just leisurely ride around the trails. I try and push myself and improve my fitness and my speed and my technique and all every time I'm out. So, but it's, it's very social for me, I think. And it's, it's a way to, to get fit. And that's how I actually got back into it, to be honest, was because I used to play a lot of American football when I was a younger believer in hot. Really? In Northern <laughs> yeah. Ireland? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't uh-huh. think there'd be a big American football scene there. No, there the, in, in Ireland, yeah, there was, when I started playing, there was probably 10, 12 teams uh-huh. at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I played for Ireland, and but I played corner, and then I played a bit of linebacker. Um, always defense. I always preferred defense. But... I've found now that I've got a meniscus tear in one knee and I've got an antibial band issue in the other knee. And so I was saying to my friend, because where where I'm from in in Northern Ireland, Port Rush now, we're big surfers. I've surfed for over 20 years and, you know, uh, that would be our main kind of pastime there. But one of my friends who actually shapes my surfboards, he's a surfboard shaper, Colin Osborne, and uh-huh. I actually had him on the podcast, episode one on the podcast. Oh, okay. Just to I say thanks. I'll, go, I'll check that one out too then. Yeah. I'll put um, that into my earbuds. Yeah. Cool, cool, man. But he got me, because he's mountain biked for a long time as well. And he kind of fell out of the way of doing it. And then I'd seen his mountain bikes. And I was like, oh, man, that's cool. That's old school. That's like an old orange. He's got a 20-year-old, 25-year-old orange. <laughs> rigid you know um steel rigid you know the old stuff and um i was like oh man that's cool yeah you know i used to do a wee bit of biking when i was younger and stuff like that and then he says dude we'll start it because it'll really help your knees and he took me out for a ride i didn't even really know of the mountain bike community around ireland at that time to be honest you know i wasn't really involved and i went out once with him i was hooked I was back on the, on the saddle, dude. I was hooked straight away. I loved it. Mm. And I just loved that a bit of adrenaline. Because it's surfers and mountain bikers are quite quite alike. A bit of adrenaline, a bit of a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. We kind of mm-hmm. talk the same. We kind of wear the same clothes. It's very similar. Um, it's the same here on the East Coast, too. There's a lot of, yeah. a lot of bleed over between those two communities. Mm. So that was me hooked and I got into it to help with knees and, and things like that. And it just went from there. And, you know, all of a sudden you're buying a bike and you're doing this and you're doing that and you're starting a podcast and you know, it's just crazy, man. It's just crazy. So talking about the podcast, what's your, um, what's your workflow like going with that? I mean, in, in your, you know, what's it take from start to finish for you to be able to get a podcast episode out? Cause I think, I, I I didn't realize until I started producing a podcast how much labor went into it on the outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say for every hour, I try and I try and do a show once per week, mm-hmm. and I try and keep my shows to about an hour. Mm-hmm. 
And I would say for every hour of audio you hear on your podcast platform, it takes me between 15 and 20 hours to do that. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. You know, people don't understand, you know, you know and I, I kind of sat down one day and tried to tried to measure this thing out. And even between emails, like I think my average email between myself and a guest before mm-hmm. the show goes live is roughly about 12 to 15 emails. That sounds about right too. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. At least I'm not doing something wrong if you're afraid of that as well. <laughs> no, it's, that's, that sounds about right. And I, I, um, I, I, I spend a lot of time in the, uh, in the production process and then trying to, um, listening to these podcast, listening to my podcast, um, getting everything edited down, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, um, particularly, um, she's not going to listen to this and hear it, but when I, when I had my mom on the show, I had to do some uh, editing in order to get her her thoughts, her her tangential tangential thoughts, moving in the same direction for long enough that a listener could hear it and understand what she was talking about. Mm-hmm. Like it made sense as I listened to it and I could follow what she was saying, but I also was listening to it as her son, and so like was getting all the references, and I had to had to do some 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 strong editing in order to be able to to uh, break that apart. But yeah, it, yeah. In the end, I think it was worth it. But um, yeah, that's I, I definitely find that as well. And and um, I, you know, I I but I think it, it's its own reward. And I can imagine that if I was laid up with a shoulder injury and I wasn't able to get onto my bike, that the podcast might be the next thing that I start obsessing about and, and, yeah. and, and really using that as a, as a, uh, as a, a, a form of therapy almost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I, I love the style of your podcast. It's very much live and you know, the editing is really, really nice. And thank you. Yeah, no, it's cool, man. It's cool. It's, it's really different. And, um, I tend to do it slightly different where I try to edit as little as possible. Yeah. You know, um, I prefer just to let the flow go and wherever it goes, it goes. And I try to edit as little as possible, unless there's a lot of cursing. And then I have to edit that then bits out. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I've been, I've only had to put the explicit marker on a couple of mine. And it was just like, we just dropped the occasional F-bomb. And, and, but most of the time I try to avoid it because I, I, I think I had an English teacher who said something to the effect of, um, you know, if, if if the curse word is all you can use, then you're not thinking creatively enough. You know, like, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It was a more pithy statement than that, but but that was the idea: is that you you should be able to express yourself more fluently than just having to rely on on curse words. There should be a, some other words that you can use in there. Yeah, so. yeah. Right. It's it's cool, man. I had a guest on the show called uh, Killian Callahan. He's a specialized writer. He writes for Specialized, uh-huh. and um, he's he's such a character and. He's such a cool, a cool dude. I actually done three, like a three episode series with him because we chatted for over three hours, and <laughs> so I broke it down into three different episodes. But Kellyanne says to me, "Is there anything I should be aware of?" And I says, "Well, Kellyanne, you know, I have a young audience that you know listen to the show on the way to the trails with their families and stuff. So, you know, if we could just keep the cursing to a minimum and and stuff and." First 10 minutes, he was fine. He was maybe a little nervous, been on the show. And then when he started to relax and the conversation started to flow, and he's 
a fantastic guest because he, he should have a podcast himself. He's an amazing fella. <laughs> He, he can tell stories so well, but he started to relax. The cursing started to come in, and then every other word was, you know, fake this and fake that and this and that and everything. <laughs> I was like, but I didn't stop him. I just thought, okay, that's more work for me. That's fine. Just, <laughs> but, dude, his, his episodes just spiked with me because people just loved his story, and he was so genuine. You oh, know, that's about, awesome how he was talking and he was talking about stuff people i just don't think he had told anybody else and his dad actually emailed me and said you know gar thanks so much for having killian on the show i can't believe you got me talk about some of the stuff he chatted about but you know i didn't really do anything killian done it himself he's just such a cool cool guy like just such a genuine fella and it was really nice to have somebody like that especially as you know a sponsored writer yeah being so truthful about the whole thing and the scene and everything that goes on um the guy the guy is such he's such a such a cool guy you know and it's so nice just to have somebody like that on the show makes it all worthwhile for sure all right well gareth thank you so much for talking today on tell me about your bike i really appreciate the opportunity to be able to sit down with you it's been a pleasure man it's been a pleasure and thanks so much uh, yeah, you, you've inspired me. When I get the file from you, I'm going to see if I can't get it up like the same day. Uh, usually I sit on stuff for, for months and months, but you know what? For, I'm going to make an exception because I think I really want to get this out and let folks hear it. So thank you so much, Gareth. I appreciate the, con- the conversation with you. Well, thanks so much, Wesley. And um, I hope you keep going, dude. I hope the podcast does really well for you. I love your style. And it's, it's different to other stuff that's out there. So hopefully um, we'll get some of the MTV Tribe listeners onto it as well. Oh, I appreciate that, Gareth. So much. It's so good to talk to you. Cheers, mate. Cheers, bud. Thank you. Bye. That's a wrap for episode 129, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. It was a little bit different from what we normally do, but I think it was cool just to have something different, just a chill out, just an hour of chilling out, because Wesley's podcast is pretty cool, pretty relaxed, and I do enjoy his style. So, Wesley, thanks so much for getting me on your show, bro. I do appreciate it. I really enjoyed our chat, and I hope everything goes well for you there in the near future, and the podcast grows from strength to strength, so good luck with that. Now, if you want to know more about Wesley, about Wesley's podcast, just go to the show notes, mtb-tribe.com, episode 129. You'll find all extra info there. You'll find links to Wesley's show. You'll find links to his socials, all that good stuff. Now, if you're enjoying the show and you want to help, the best way of doing that is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Every one of your ratings helps boost us on Apple's algorithms and helps spread the good word about the show to more people. If you're not on Apple, you can also find and subscribe via Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean, and we are on almost every podcast platform, so you'll be able to find us there or from your favorite platform. We also have a website, mtb-tribe.com, where you can find the complete bike catalogue, listen and download every show from there. You can also subscribe there and get one email per week with a quick and easy link to listen to the show. And folks, if you are emailing into the show and you're expecting a response, or you are subscribed and you're not getting emails, just please check your spam folder. For some reason, my emails are dropping into the spam folders. So even if you're getting in contact just to say hello to the show and you haven't had a response from me, please check your email spam folder because I would have got back to you and uh, it'll probably have dropped in there, unfortunately, over the last few weeks. 
You can also get involved on social media at MTB Tribe on Instagram and Facebook. Take screenshots and help share the show. We are not promoted by any brands or we don't get any help that way. So word of mouth is the way the show grows. And I hope you guys will help me out in doing that. And I just let some friends know or your riding buddies know about the show. And uh, let's get more people off the sofa and onto the saddles. And hopefully the podcast can help with that. So thanks so much, folks, for being here this week. Again, I do appreciate it. Next week, we'll have another show about getting ready for the race season. It's a good one. It's one that's quite general to it, but it will definitely help you riding, no matter if you're racing or you're just doing it on the odd weekend. This will certainly help you get out there and enjoy your riding more. So until next weekend, go out on the bikes, hit the trails, and as always, 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 stay MTB stoked. <laughs>